Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, yet again at the start of another crucial week for the Prime Minister and the government. It would seem as though we have one of those every single week. I can't remember the last time we didn't have a crucial week for the government. Here at Talk Radio, of course, you know you can rely on us to guide you through the choppy waters of political intrigue emanating from Downing Street and other parts of Whitehall, because when it comes to chicanery, you might need a dictionary of terms. And who better to give it to you than me, a man who has dealt with words all of his life uh, and who sometimes even uses the right ones. The latest news this morning is that the party still isn't over, but it's starting to look a bit serious for Boris Johnson. The vultures are indeed circling and the pressure isn't letting up. We've got headlines that say things like entire cabinet would back a tax hike delay. Uh, we've got Johnson still believes he broke no rules in the Times. The Sun uh, talking about how it is a sort of D-Day for Boris Johnson. The Daily Telegraph, uh, number 10 police questioned by Gray over parties and some suggestions that Boris Johnson may not be Prime Minister by the end of this week. Well, not if you ask him. It's all very difficult to work out. Meanwhile, looking east, of course, the UK and the USA have ordered all their staff to leave embassies in Ukraine as fears rise of an imminent Russian invasion. But is it all a case of sabre-rattling from Moscow? Uh, we will find out. We'll be asking Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens what he thinks is going on. He knows an awful lot about what's going on in Russia, of course. Up first, though, it's Rod Little from the Sunday Times. We'll get his take on the state of things, how we got here, and why everyone seems to want to tell us what to do, and why there are so many people who don't seem to know what to do now, and Unless they are actually told what to do. In addition to that, we'll be checking on the latest from the NHS, who seems to be getting closer and closer to reversing their policy on mandatory vaccinations. Quite right, too. The size of the demonstrations at the weekend should have convinced Sajid Javid it is the right thing to do. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we want to hear from you. I've been having some very lively conversations over the weekend on social media, not just about the NHS, but also about the latest on the highway code front, because we're joined by Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer also known as Mr Loophole. He's going to talk about the changes coming this week to the Highway Code. If you don't know what they are, you should check them out because the government have now got a full-blown effort to get more and more people out of their cars uh, to get us all walking and cycling, which is all very well if you live in the middle of a city. It's all very well if you live in the middle of a town. But if you don't live in the middle of a city or the middle of a town, you won't be able to get anywhere on public transport. One of the things that I think is completely and utterly ridiculous is the advice to cyclists to actually travel in the middle of the road, in front of cars, at the speed at which cycling cyclists go. It's not a very good idea. It's bound to lead to a bad place. 03444991000. Plus, Anthony Worrell-Thompson is here as well with his take on Jamie Oliver's recipes. Apparently, some of them have been criticised for cultural misappropriation. For heaven's sake, whatever that means. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we don't get this man on the show often enough, so it's a real pleasure to be able to introduce to you at this early time of the morning, Mr. Rod Little. Rod, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. A pleasure to be a part of your independent republic. Listen, you. you're you're far too seldom a visitor, Rod. But I know that yeah. you're in, you're in great demand um, uh, all over the, uh, the the airwaves. So so let's begin. No, with... I'm, t- I'm just lazy, mate. <laughs> let's begin with the state of play and where we are, because I I very much enjoyed your column uh, in the Sunday Times yesterday, which was all about why people seem to be pushed around all the time. I found myself the other day coming out of the tube, and one of the exits was blocked by these kind of uniformed. Um, so-called uh, London Underground employees who don't seem to do anything except stand around telling you which way to walk. And I was so incensed that they were telling me I couldn't go in a particular direction. I thought I finally reached peak madness because I hate being told what to do. But everybody at the moment seems to want to tell us what to do. They do, yeah. I mean, uh, th- this comes from, a, for the first time in a, in a very long while, a, an intelligence statement from the government, <laughs> uh, which is... Uh, uh, it's, they've called it their bonfire of the banalities. And what they're trying to do is to stop rail companies, particularly, uh, as comes from Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, stop them uh, giving us fatuous information and fatuous instructions. And I think they particularly mean see it, say it, sort it. Oh. Uh, that, that hugely, you know, that thing when you see a, a rucksack with some sarin poking out of it on the, on the train. <laughs> You know, you're supposed to tell the train manager there's some sarin over there, mate, and he sorts it out for you. Yeah, well, that first, um, but not before asking if you're wearing a mask, presumably. <laughs> well, well, before kicking you off the train for not wearing a mask. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, but it's it's what they could do is broaden this because it's actually quite a serious subject because what it does is undermine our own uh, sense of responsibility for how we behave and mm. how we interact with other people. If you keep being told, so for example, I, I'll give an example in, in the piece I wrote, which is uh, if you go down uh, uh, to Bond Street Tube, you'll find somewhere in the region of 27, 28 instructions as to how to behave. All of them you would do anyway, unless you're a sociopath. Right. So it's buy a ticket. Uh, and they tell you that on the train, of course, you can't come on this train without a ticket. No, really? Good Lord. You know, um, make sure you stand on the right. Don't push, don't rush, let people off the train first. We all do this Mm. because we're sentient human beings. And frankly, a sociopath won't take any notice of these these rules anyway, of of, of people telling you to do this. Um, And what what it does is it, um, and it's been proven, it, it it makes life more dangerous and it takes away our own sense of responsibility. And the way they've proven this is with the street signs. Yeah. Uh, particularly in Holland, started in the Netherlands with uh, with a with a Dutch engineer who said, well, what would happen if we removed all these hectoring street furniture signs, you know, telling you to slow down, behave yourself, get into lane. Keep left. Sure you, yeah. yeah, keep left. Make, make sure you don't do any of this stuff. And so he removed them. Uh, they removed them from a whole bunch. And, and things got a lot better. Uh, there was a there was a slowing of traffic speed because people suddenly had to think for themselves and look out for other people. Um, and there was a, a, a immediate reduction in um, in uh, incidents of, you know, crashes and stuff mm. like that. So so it actually works. If you give people back their independence, it works. And there's a kind of um, corollary with uh, COVID over this. Uh, I didn't mention it in my piece, but it's the, it's, it's the kind of same thing that instead of telling us we can't go out of our house uh, at all, as in the first lockdown, you know, you can only go to the shops once a fortnight, mm. allowed out for an hour, but you can't sit down on a bench, all that, all that stuff. 
if you actually leave it to people to decide to behave responsibly, the vast majority of them will. And I think that's what we've seen in the last six weeks with uh, Omicron. Mm. Uh, people have used their own common sense and as a consequence, we're emerging very rapidly from this illness. Yes. And isn't it interesting how so many of the sort of former sage maniacs are now kind of coming around to the idea that perhaps that is the best way to go. But while qualifying it, because they don't want to make out they made some terrible mistakes, qualifying it by saying, well, of course, over the course of two years, people's behaviour has changed. And so people are behaving now in a way which is less likely to spread it. But I'm not sure that that's true. I think there are some people who like to be told what to do and others who don't. I think that's probably true. And I think Sage is wrong, as it's been wrong Funny that. the last months about pretty much everything. Uh, when we were in that first lockdown, uh, which was, I mean, if you think back to it, Mike, it was incredibly rigorous. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's very specific now, as well. And very specific. It's hard now to believe that we, that as you know, as we, we dosed ourselves up on hand sanitizer to go out for our bi-weekly uh, no, our, our once weekly shop at the local supermarket, standing 10 yards away, queues all down. It's really difficult to understand that we put up with that, but we did. But when we came out of that of that uh, uh, lockdown, uh, you remember our Freedom Day? Yes. Well, I, and I suspect most people, didn't rush around hugging everybody. No. Breathing on them. You know, we just behaved proportionately. Right. Uh, and once we're given the right to behave the way we think is best, then people tend to do it. There'll always be some nutters who don't, you know, like Boris Johnson, for example. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't make for great reading, does it? When you see that some of the people who have mostly been affected by COVID the worst and have been isolating the most, they're all in Westminster. I mean, Keir, yeah, Starmer, well, I... Keir Starmer's been self-isolating six times up to now. Yeah, and uh, don't forget it started in Westminster, and that's one of the the nastier things about this illness, which is that it began with the affluent in Westminster mm. um, and but killed the elderly and the poor yeah. in, in the parts of the country I'm in, you know, up here in Teesside. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely true. Uh, that being said, you know, on the Boris Johnson issue, I don't think he's got long for this world. No. But uh, it's interesting that, we're effectively, we'll effectively be getting rid of him for the very reasons we liked him, which is propensity to break rules and take no notice yeah. of what people tell him to do. Right. And he broke rules continually uh, over Brexit. Uh, in, in, if you remember, his attempts to get the Brexit bill through Parliament uh, involved the most appalling chicanery, mm. actually. Um, but he did it. And yeah. we liked him for it because it was the democratic thing to do. Right. Um, you know, and and he told the, the the sage scientists before Christmas to get stuff, right. basically. Well, thank um, goodness for that, because we haven't seen them since, you know. And um, we haven't seen them since. One of, no, one no, of no. them's leaving. I don't, I don't know where Chris Whitty's hiding, but uh, he's not been seen since he told everybody to prioritise their social engagement sometime around about December the 20th. No, no, that's right. And, uh, I mean, hopefully we, hopefully we don't hear from them too much again, and hopefully we don't... There was a rather naive idea round about uh, March and April 2020, that, that we being guided by science was in some way a good thing mm. because science is objective and science doesn't bother with politics. And it was so naive and so dumb because, of course, 
science is never as pure and as objective as you think it's going to be, and it's very often wrong. That's mm. the point of science. Right. And they've been wrong, you know, frequently and and calamitously, I would say, in the last mm. eight weeks. And they don't tell the truth. You know, that's the thing which bothers me. Yeah. Because I remember during the early days of Omicron, uh, they were trying to deny that it was a mild illness. Yes. You well, they were, act- they were actively misleading us, I would say. They were actively misleading us. And so at first they <clears throat> tried to tell us it wasn't a mild illness. When every available in- in piece of information, either from South Africa or from Great Britain with the handful of cases which had come in, showed that it was indeed a very mild illness. Yes. <clears throat> and indeed... Uh, milder, actually, uh, than uh, than a usual winter cold and mm. cough. Um, so, that, so they tried to do that, which was a lie. You know, it was a, that that was actually a lie. They also later said that, well, okay, maybe it's milder, a little bit milder. Well, it's not a bit milder; it's very mild. Mm. Uh, but that will be compensated for by the fact that it affects more people. So, so our hospitals will be overflowing. Well, again, no, that was a lie. Yeah. You know, it wasn't merely inaccurate. They were putting out falsehoods. Um, but it's a bit like saying the area of the triangle remains the same because one side's got a lot longer, even though the other side's got a lot shorter. And you should have been saying, actually, that's not a triangle anymore. Yeah, no, no that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, it, and it's not just that. There are other little things which, you know, gnaw away at me and annoy me. Uh, because I can remember thinking back in 2020, and I, I'm no uh, biological, uh, epidemiological expert, but I do remember from, particularly from, actually, oddly enough, um, myxomatosis, mm. that viruses tend to weaken and become more transmissible. So more people get them, but they're a lot weaker yeah. over time. And we were told continually by the, by the sage lot that, oh, no, that's, that's a common falsehood, a common falsehood. But once again now we're hearing scientists coming out and saying, well, it is the tendency of viruses like COVID to become weaker but more transmissible. Yes. Yeah, I also I, I, I also heard last week one of these doctors saying, "Well, of course, the reason we didn't pay any attention to the data from South Africa was because they have a very different situation from us because <laughs> they had many more people who had been infected with COVID and who therefore had immunity because they'd had it." And I'm like, "Hang on a minute." You've been telling us for ages that that doesn't matter and that it's more important to get a vaccination. Right. Suddenly they're now relying on that as a reason why they couldn't actually quote it. Yes, it, it's very good. Well, they also pointed out that the South Africa had a different age demographic to us. And it does, but it doesn't mean you discount the entire evidence. No. You'll see entire evidence was saying this is a really, really mild illness. And, you know, we've, in, in my house up here, we've had, uh, my daughter had COVID um, and... Um, was perfectly okay, a bit sniffy for two or three days, yeah. you know. Uh, my wife had a normal cold, and she was laid out right. for two or three days. I, I mean, uh, it, it, it's, it's become ludicrous, and it's become patently ludicrous, because it's very clear to everybody now that all the other ailments, the winter flus, the colds, the coughs, are probably worse than this thing we have closed the entire country down to save ourselves from. Yes. And so let's get back to Boris. Um, he's being told this is another crucial week for him. Um, it's very difficult now to read the runes on this, isn't it? I mean, I think he is, as you say, not long for this world. It's a question of when rather than if. Um, but I suppose for those who want to see him staying in, they say 
Well, so what if he had a few parties? Like you said, that's what we expected him to do in a way. But I say that his damage is not so much from the parties. It's from the fact that he hasn't done the things that he said he would do. You know, the only thing he's been focusing on is this green agenda. Now we've got this god-awful, you know, uh, Chris Boardman-inspired race to the uh, bike shed so that you must cycle and walk everywhere, which is fine if you live in the middle of London, but I suspect not great if you live in the Teesside area where there's probably yeah. one bus an hour to get you to the shops, you know? Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, but no, I, I, think, I think that's true. I think, Alan, what, what has he done? Up here we've got a free port, uh, which is going to bring in 20,000 jobs. Um, we're, we're pleased about that. You know, that, that works. That's something, you know, that, that's part of the levelling up. Mm. But by and large, the levelling up really hasn't gone... I mean, it's only now they're getting around to thinking about a white paper on levelling up. You yes. know, and that should have been done two years ago. Um, and, and they haven't done it. I think it's more... I think it's more uh, the lying than the parties. It, 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 because people have finally tweaked that Boris... Johnson seems to lie reflexively. Yes. That it's his first port of call when anything happens mm. is to lie. Right. You know, usually politicians save it for a bit later. Right. Uh, he does it straight down there, lie. Yes. <clears throat> and he thinks it doesn't matter. But I also think that matched in, mixed in there somewhere, everybody I talk to up here, uh, uh, everybody, you know, when I'm wandering around the shops, uh, talking to a woman on the, on the till at Marks and Spencer's, for example, she said, um, that her grandson, her first grandson, was born during the first lockdown. And he only lived a street away, but she couldn't visit him. All she was allowed to do was walk down the street and wave through the window. That's crazy. And so it? she's furious about the party. But I'm, I'm, it's difficult to say this, but I do wonder if they're... If, I think they're furious with Boris, but I think they're also furious with themselves for having taken any notice. Yes. <laughs> done all this in 2020 why on earth did we do that it seems to be yeah and there are an awful, and there are an awful lot of people with that sort of uh, experience you know who couldn't see yeah. uh, a, a relative or who had to yeah. cancel a wedding or who have a business that's now ruined you know there's an awful lot of people in that situation i think you're right uh, but but also his failure to well, including of... including me i couldn't see my relatives for ages and i've never been happier in my life but yeah. that's another that's another issue really. yeah but what do you make of the kind of uh, the, the the chicanery that goes on inside the Tory party? Because they've got a great history of knifing each other in the back whenever they get the opportunity to do so. But they seem a bit frightened of Boris. I don't think they're very good at it. I think it's a myth that the Conservative Party is this ruthless uh, uh, organisation which reacts with great decisiveness. It really doesn't. Um, I think they're scared stiff of a number of things at the moment. Firstly, it's almost always the case that the front runner in any Conservative Party leadership uh, race doesn't win. Mm. It's almost always the case, right back to Margaret Thatcher, uh, and, and indeed Edward Heath, but Margaret Thatcher particularly came from the outside. John Major came from the outside. Uh, Theresa May came from the outside, etc., etc. None of them were favourites. Um, so that puts an enormous pressure on people like Rishi Sunak mm. uh, and his trust. Uh, but particularly Rishi, I suppose. Um, so nobody, what they're trying to do at the moment is work out who will be jockeying for position, who could possibly be the leader, and it's 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 not terribly clear at the moment. I think this is. I think he's. I think he's a goner, Boris. Um, but I think it could be two or three months. Mm. You know, I think I think the May elections may prove more 
crucial for the Conservative Party than uh, than than uh, uh, Sue Gray's letter yes. uh, or investigation. I mean, the the relationship between Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party is transactional. He is there because loads of MPs, many of whom cannot stand him, he wins elections. Yeah. For some reason, he's popular with the people. But now that's in the past tense. You know, you look at his opinion poll ratings. I don't, uh, once that's gone, there is no point in keeping Boris Johnson. I think that's right. And when he is finally sort of uh, shuffled out, as they all are inevitably against their will, yeah. will it be, do you think, the fault of his associations with the wrong kind of people, like sort of Carrie and her friends and the people who have been advising him over the course of time, who are clearly incredibly metropolitan elite types, you know, people like, you know, the, uh, the Zach Goldsmiths of this world and the various other kind of Eton-educated, privately-educated kids who are in Downing Street, who have no real clue about how people live in places like where you are? No, and I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, he got rid of the wrong person, didn't he? I mean, Dominic Cummings would have been very, very useful. Yeah. Um, but Dominic's not a conservative. You know, he's uh, he's probably a bit more like me, a social democrat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're dead right about Carrie and the influence. I mean, I don't know how deep that influence is, but it is nonetheless the case that the Conservative Party has been very slow to kick back against the kind of liberal overreach and wokery uh, rubbish that we've all had to put up with these last five or six years. Indeed, there are, there are still Conservative MPs, you know, on important committees such as the ghastly Caroline Noakes, uh, who are, you know, urging us to uh, be uh, still more latitudinous towards the transgender lobby. Uh. You know, up yours, love. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, she, uh, but, but, you know, it's been a Conservative government which is doing this. It's a Conservative government which is which is making these uh, these uh, ludicrous bringing yeah. suggestions for for the transport network, you know, and yet this is exactly the sort of thing that the red wall voters didn't want. No, exactly, uh, and they may they may want it in Fulham, you know, and I dare say that uh, uh, that the Labour Party will win Fulham and win all those other affluent places down south, uh, but no one up here wanted it. Well, that's right. I mean, I've got a great tweet from this guy called Glenn this morning. He says, I'd love to work from home, but unfortunately I can't fit my lorry into my living room. And basically well, that kind well, of sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah, I, no, it absolutely does. Well, the other big story in all of this is the behaviour of the public sector. Yes. And particularly the top levels of the public sector, who have been the most strident in calling for more restrictions at every single turn. Uh, and have uh, and, and are still calling for more restrictions now. And don't forget, <clears throat> it wasn't just Boris; it was the civil service which held that party. Yeah. You know? uh, and I think they do think that the rules don't apply to them. And don't forget as well that uh, the public sector, the divide between in pay, in pensions, in working hours, in working years between the public sector and the private sector is 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 growing by the by the week. Uh, the public sector. Have had a really, really good COVID. Oh, they have, COVID. without any very, question. Very well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But listen, Rod, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Already stimulating an awful lot of reaction, a lot of calls coming in. We'll get to all of those, of course, as well. Rod Little, columnist at the Sun and the Sunday Times, talking a great deal of sense about all manner of things. But let's talk some more about what it is that made people do what they did and how annoying is it now to learn that some of those people telling you what you should have been doing are now going, well, you know. Maybe we didn't have to do all that. Well, really? Really? 
0344 499 1000. This is a home of common sense. It's Talk Radio. In search of the perfect debate. Listen online. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. An awful lot of common sense heard already on this show from Rod Little uh, talking about the trouble uh, with government in this day and age. It's all gone a bit woke, it's all gone a bit green, it's all gone a bit unconservative, hasn't it? Uh, And that's what a lot of people have been saying to me, that they don't mind the fact that Boris Johnson had parties. They don't really care that much that it was mostly civil servants that were doing it. However, they do care about the hypocrisy and they do care about the fact that all sorts of strange things are starting to emerge from Downing Street, like, for example, today's highway code recommendations and the changes. We're going to talk to those very shortly uh, with Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, uh, also known, of course, as Mr Loophole. First, though, let me remind you, Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV Plus, Roku, YouTube. Now we're on Amazon Fire TV. No excuse for you not to be watching us. If you're listening to us, it's great, and we love you listening to us, but do watch it as well, because it is a thing of great beauty. What we are doing here at Talk Radio TV is quite extraordinary. And don't forget, Talk TV coming down the pipe as well uh, with Piers Morgan. Uh, and all sorts of other great shows which we're going to be showing you over the course of this year. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be amazing. Let's talk, though, first of all, about the roads of this country because, quite frankly, I think the government here and the Department of Transport have gone stark, staring, bonkers mad. Nick Freeman is here. Nick, a very good morning to you. Morning, mate. So, um, we sort of knew this was coming, but I didn't really know until yesterday that the, eman- em- the emanation of it, if you like, from the Department of Transport has been driven by this kind of anti-car mentality where they want everybody walking and cycling everywhere, which, as I've said, is all very well if you live in a relatively urban setting. But my children, for example, live in quite, not particularly rural part of Sussex, but, you know, a part of Sussex which is, which is quite rural. There are no public transport options really to speak of after five o'clock at night. No, I think look, I think it's well intentioned, but I think it's ill-conceived yeah. that they haven't actually thought through carefully. That the whole point of this is to increase safety, and we're, we're all in favour of that to try and make our roads safer for everybody, for all users. But safety doesn't actually equal pro- priority, and what they're doing is they're prioritising the, the most vulnerable. Uh, road users such as pedestrians, cyclists, et cetera, et cetera, in reverse order. So, for example, we're going to have a situation now where pedestrians at junctions can step off the road. They have priority. Um, and, and I fear that it's going to be carnage. I fear that actually it's going to have the reverse effect and our roads are going to be much more angry and much more dangerous, mm. particularly for the most vulnerable people. Yeah. Because we always have situations now, don't we, where pedestrians and cyclists have, have this sort of sense of entitlement. They're now going to have the force of the highway code behind it, um, which will only increase that sense of entitlement uh, and it will make our roads much dangerous. It seems to just lack common sense, as many things do in this day and age. So um, I do fear for it. I think it's important to bear in mind that most of these provisions are advisory, they're not mandatory. So when it says you should do this, you should do that, that they're advising you to do it. But of course, if you don't do it and there is an accident, you will be prosecuted and it will be evidence collated against you. Uh, and obviously it's evidence that carries significant weight. Mm. So you, you need to comply with it. Yes. But, but the provisions, you know, you're, you're driving along and you come to a junction, you're about to turn left, there's a pedestrian there, you slam your brakes on because the pedestrian's going to step out in front of you. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be more sensible to say to those who are most vulnerable, 
you actually have to share this responsibility as well. And actually, pedestrians should cross the roads at certain designated places yeah. to try and make them safer, rather than just saying step out at junctions because you, you, you're the boss, it's your right of way. It, to me, it defies common sense and logic. So, so are you saying that this potentially could be a situation, for example, so you're coming up to, uh, you're on a dual carriage where you're coming up to a roundabout, uh, as you come to the stop at the roundabout, somebody could just walk out and cross the road there? Yeah. Well, they they haven't they've specified roundabouts for cycling, um, not necessarily for pedestrians. They refer to junctions. Right. So I'm not sure we're going to have pedestrians stepping out at roundabouts, but certainly at all the junctions they have priority, um, and and you have to stop. Now that that's that is advisory. You know, of course, if there is a pedestrian on a, a zebra crossing, a pelican crossing, you must. That's mandatory. Obviously, you they have right of way. You stop. You don't go. Right. But if they're waiting at the side, as is sensible, then you should let them pass. You should let them have priority. So, you know, the, the thought behind it is let's try and make the roads safer. But by removing responsibility for the most vulnerable, it's going to have the opposite effect. In, in the same way that smart motorways have done. You know, one good thing that comes out of this highway code is smart motorways. You know, the, 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 the small amount of mileage that's left, I think it's about 63 projects left or 63 miles left. That's going to be frozen until proper technology is introduced. So they're going to do a survey for five years. But that's about the only good thing that I think comes out of this. And, and I say that not because I'm anti-road safety. I want to improve road safety, yeah. but I just don't understand how this is going to work. No. I and mean, the, other, the other thing that's very alarming is no one knows about it. Well, you know, it's coming in on Saturday the 29th. Um, the, the, the polls that have been done suggest the vast majority, well, a significant number of motorists don't even know there's going to be a change. And of those, some are saying, we're not even going to look, we don't care, which isn't healthy. The motorist obviously needs to be educated uh, and we need to we need to be aware of how we properly and safely share road space. Of course. So, um, and I think, I mean, for me, there are several issues, one which you've just raised, which is that it's advisory rather than mandatory unless and until there's an incident, which will make it very confusing for people who are already pretty wound up on the roads because of all the carnage that's been created by the way that roads have now been redesigned in order to allow for cycle lanes and all the rest of it. And my question I put out on Twitter yesterday was that if cyclists are now being told they don't have to use cycle lanes, they're quite welcome to use the road, even if there's a cycle lane next to them. What was the point of butchering the road system to put all those cycle lanes in at a considerable cost to the taxpayer? But a very valid point, but they never had to use them in any case. It was always, you know, my complaint, and I think you agreed with me, they're spending hundreds of millions of pounds on cycle lanes. It was never a mandatory requirement that they use them. So what is the point? You know, either either have them and say they're there for a reason, you must use them, or, or let's not bother at all. Um, so I don't think they're saying anything new. The law hasn't changed in that respect. But what is interesting now is um, cyclists are advised to adopt what's called the primary position, when it's a 20 mile an hour speed limit. So in other words, they're advised to sit in the middle of the road. Uh, and that of course right. is going to infuriate motorists. Um, that's going to increase frustration. And um, I think it's going to lead to man many incidents because motorists are not going to want to sit behind the cyclists who might be going 10, 15 miles an hour and being held up when the speed limit's 20 miles an hour. Right. The, the code actually says move over when, when it's safe to do so. But you, you can see how this is going to unfold. Oh, of course. Um, and, and it's not, not going to unfold well. No, exactly right. And let me ask you one other situation, which which I don't know whether you can answer. If you are, for example, on a roundabout in a car and you're driving in the, and, and the next sort of out, if you like, uh, a cyclist is coming from there, are you supposed to stop on the roundabouts and let him out then? 
Absolutely. You've got what? to let him have safe passage. So you actually you so you do... stop on a roundabout, which up until now would be considered to be one dangerous and two probably an offence. Yeah, your, your, your priority is to ensure his safety as a motorist. Uh, and that's what you've got to do. So he, he doesn't he can keep to the near side as he's going round. But as he approaches you, you've got to try and afford him safe passage insofar as is reasonable. It's, you, you're using your common sense, your experience of driving. But the, what they're saying is now, you know, if you hit a cyclist on a roundabout, um, even if he is coming, it, it's going to be your fault. The, the starting point is now in law, it's it's not the reverse burden. Well, it's it's the it is actually your fault. You prove otherwise. Mm. And with the highway code now um, enshrined as it's going to be from Saturday, it, it's going to be a very heavy burden for you to shift. Yeah. So you, you, your preoccupation is to make sure if the cyclist on the on that roundabout or even pedestrians, make sure they have safe passage. And if we all do that, then I suppose there are going to be no accidents, but it, it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Well, there's going to be an awful lot of people stopping where you're not expecting them to stop. For example, um, there's already parts of London where you're not allowed to turn left, for example, across the cycle lane. It's not just that you're supposed yes. to stop. It's that there's actually no left turn. So if you happen to be unfortunate enough to live down that road, you have to go on somewhere else, turn right and come all the way back and around. Similarly, they've put a new thing in the highway code, I understand it, that you, you're not allowed to turn left without allowing any cyclist on the inside of you to go past. Yeah, so you're going, you, you, if you wanted to turn left to the junction, say 50 yards ahead, and there's a cyclist 20, 30 yards behind you, you, you slow down and allow him to pass. You don't turn in front of him. You have to let him undertake you, wait till he's clear, then you go. And can you imagine the situation, Mike, if there's a pedestrian on there as well? The cyclist then has to stop for the pedestrian who has priority over the cyclist. Uh, it, you know, and if you're, just, and if you're in a single it, lane road, then you're going to cause another traffic jam behind you as you wait for the cyclist or two or three or four cyclists to come past. I think what, what the government needs to do is let everyone use common sense. Uh, and, and that tends to work because most motorists, most people have common sense. Uh, and uh, what they're trying to do is controllers take that away. Um, and it, it, by putting these rules in place, it, it is going to have the reverse effect as it, ha as it has with smart mode. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. And one wonders who's advising the government to do this. Well, who are the people who are saying, look, this is a good idea? You well, know, I can, I can help, I can help you with that, Nick. I can help you with that. It's Chris Boardman, who's been appointed to be the sort of government's national yeah. cycling czar, yeah. who I'm very unsadly yeah. for him. And I can understand why he feels the way he does. Um, had a terrible thing happen. His mother, I think, was run over by, yeah. by uh, um, a, a driver. Uh, and killed and so naturally he's got you know an affinity with with sort of making it much safer for people to walk and to cycle uh, at all times and i get that but nevertheless the government's job is to take all of that into account and not make it worse yeah uh, look what one it, it was a tragic accident and i understand that but there needs to be a balanced sensible approach and you know obviously he's emotionally involved he's got huge experience with cycling one respects what he says but you need the balance from other people who are motorists, who are lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, who can say, look, actually, let's talk about it together and let's come up with a plan that works for everybody and not for the tiny minority. Yes. That's what we've got here. Final question for you, um, uh, Nick. From Mike, this has come in on, uh, on Twitter. Can you please ask, Nick, if the cyclist is at fault during a collision, if the cyclist has no lights on at night? Um, well, that will be an aggravating feature for the cyclist. The cyclist was is in breach of the highway code if he doesn't have lights at night time. If a car hits him, on the face of it, it will be the cyclist's fault because, you know, um, 
you know, we have to look at the situation as it is. Was, it, was he wearing high-vis jacket? Did he have any lights? Did he have reflectors on his bike? What sort of condition? On the face of it, if he's got no lights and it's an unlit road, it's probably going to be his fault, not the motorist. No motorist deliberately tries to mow down a cyclist. Cyclists must be visible. They have a duty to ensure. The highway code insists they should wear helmets, high-vis, et cetera, et cetera. They're advised to do it. They need to play their part, mm. you know. Uh, and, you know, I saw a picture of Chris Borman the other day cycling. Uh, he wasn't wearing a helmet. And, you know, it wasn't wearing high-vis jacket. It doesn't send out the right message, I'm afraid. No. Absolutely right. Well, Nick, I'm sure we'll be talking about this some more uh, as it comes into uh, effect. But thank you very much indeed, Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer there. I mean, this is absolute and utter madness, isn't it? I mean, I'm not going to mince my words here. This is not to do with cyclists versus um, car drivers. This is not to do with pedestrians versus cyclists. This is to do with road safety for everybody. And what these measures suggest to me is that there will be a lot more accidents, a lot more injuries, a lot more deaths on the road. And that is not really a very good idea, is it? This is Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense, the world headquarters of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, of course, you know uh, that there are plenty of truths out there, but there is only really one truth, and that is the one uh, which most people actually understand uh, to be full of facts as opposed to opinions. Uh, there are plenty of opinions out there. Some of them are even quite good. However... What we prefer to do uh, is to look at all the opinions, to look at all the facts and to try and give you a picture of what is really going on. To wit, this morning, uh, the US and the UK pulled all of their uh, employees basically out of the embassies in Ukraine on the basis that they believe there to be an imminent strike coming from Russia, uh, who they believe want to take over the country. Peter Hitchens wrote about this at the weekend. We'll be talking to him about that. Uh, he, like me, thinks this is more about sabre rattling than it is about anything else. And for heaven's sake, I don't know why people are sort of going on about why there might be a war going on uh, on the eastern edges of Europe, which might involve infractiones into Poland. That doesn't seem to make very much sense to me. We'll also talk about Boris Johnson. Not Boris, because Peter doesn't like me calling him Boris. Uh, maybe Johnson, uh, or maybe Alexander, as he called him in his, uh, uh, in his column this weekend. He's actually defending him, though. He's saying he should hang around. We'll find out why that has happened, too. We'll also continue to take your calls on the Highway Code, uh, which seems to me to have been invented uh, and reinvented and rewritten by some kind of maniac who wants everybody to crash into one another at roundabouts, at junctions, where there are traffic lights, where there are cycling lanes, where there are left turns. I mean, it really is all over the place. Uh, it has literally been thrown up in the air and stitched back together all in the wrong order. 0344 499 We will also be talking to Anthony Warrell Thompson coming up a little bit later on uh, because Jamie Oliver has been told that some of his recipes cannot now be used. Empire chicken, heaven forbid. You can't say that anymore because it's some kind of cultural misappropriation. Deary me. I've also got some things to tell you about the NHS and mandatory vaccines and scams and all the rest of it. I've just been sent uh, a text message in which it says, uh, would I like a part-time job? I don't know. What have you heard? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Very good morning to you too. Now, I suppose we could start and in, in a sort of revolutionary way and talk about Julian Assange, who appears to have got a little bit of a break this morning just before we started talking um, at the High Court. Yes, it is good news, isn't it? Uh, it? It certainly means that the prospects of him being shoved into some dungeon in the United States in the near future is, is, is pushed back towards the horizon. And one could only hope that now that we have a Supreme Court, uh, not an idea I was ever particularly keen on, that they might show some independence from the general mm. attempt to, to uh, 
to enforce an extradition treaty, which I, I think almost everybody regards as unfair in itself and, and, and is completely wrong in this case, because it's clearly a political offence is being pursued, which even the extradition treaty in all its non-glory uh, prevents from happening. Mm. One can only hope. Uh, it, it, it has to be better than, than him being refused the right to appeal to the Supreme Court. Yes, absolutely right. So we shall, we shall follow it with interest. But, I mean, presumably he's still incarcerated, which is something you've talked about before. But he's know, horribly what? incarcerated. Why? Uh, this is what no one will really say. I mean, there are, he, he's in a maximum security prison. And he, I'm not suggesting they should put him in an open prison. Uh, after all, he has got this history of, of, uh, of jumping bail. But I, which is which is one of the reasons why he's in prison mm. at all. But that doesn't mean he has to be in the more or less the toughest and most restrictive conditions in the British prison system. And there have to be places uh, which are where he could be securely held, where he didn't have to undergo what he under, undergoes there, especially a man in in the state of health that he is said by his supporters to be in. I don't. It seems to me to be a misuse of the prison system. Liberals always say that people are not sent to prison as punishment, uh, but for punishment. The mm. punishment is, is, is deprivation of liberty. They're not supposed to suffer particularly or, uh, while they're there. And you've probably seen this rather good new prison drama on Channel 4. It, it's obviously very politically correct, but it has a lot of accuracy. Yes. I haven't actually. I saw you giving it a, a thumbs yeah. up last week, but I haven't actually I watched it. But the main prison officer, who, when, when she welcomes, the, <laughs> welcomes uh, greets the prisoners on arrival, says, I, I don't care what you've done, it's what you do here that bothers me. Right. I think that's supposed to be the attitude. Well, Julian Assange has not actually been convicted of an offence. Uh, he's a civil prisoner, as right. I understand. And, and really, he should therefore be in, uh, in, in quite relaxed conditions and, and probably able to have things like his own meal set in and much better visiting circumstances but because it's Belmarsh he's, he's, he's treated really very severely indeed and I think it's it, it, it's becoming as it drags on uh, an act of oppression in itself right. and I think because be yeah I mean it's not really I mean I'm no fan of his as you know but I mean equally no, nor am I. E equally his um his continued incarceration is, is all down to the, the the slow wheels of justice isn't it it's nothing else to do nothing else really than that well, yeah, but also, as I say, this, you know, there are many, many uh, different sorts of prison in our prison system, and Belmarsh is, is among the hardest to endure, and I, I just don't see why he should be there. No, quite. It's not a matter of liking him. I, 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 I know I don't like him. By the time I, I, I encountered him, uh, we didn't get on, but that's, who cares about that? Mm. Uh, I, I back people against injustice. Whether I like them or not. Yes, so, well, as ever, Peter, you run against the tide in that case because most people nowadays only support those people that they agree with. <laughs> and you know, actually, well, there we are. I mean, unfortunately, that that is where we are. But uh, speaking of which, you've now suddenly come down on the side of uh, Mr. Boris Johnson, as you like me to call him, um, uh, defending him. Imagine, imagine my shock to see you defending him at the weekend. <laughs> no, I have not come down on his side. I've come down against his enemies. Yes, it's a different thing. Quite. Uh, it's uh, I have never well I, once you examine it the old much touted uh, saw that my enemy's enemy is my friend yes it's not true my enemy's enemy can be my ally uh, because we're against the same thing but it doesn't make him my friend no I still disapprove as heartily as ever of Al Johnson and of what he did <laughs> and of this government in general which seems to me to be broadly a, a fairly left wing government the kind I don't like but I the I see that the attack on him at the moment 
which is largely orchestrated by the BBC, which, as we know, is the central committee of the Liberal Revolution, yeah. uh, is, uh, is, is one which I have to oppose. And it, it, it was very, very sh sharply and clearly summed up the nature of it by this extraordinary tweet which the Labour Party put out, which I hope I gave quite a lot of publicity yes, to. Yes, you did. This nurse, I suppose, that I would imagine that they've got a real person, and one hopes that they wouldn't invent a person, uh, allegedly called Jenny, uh, saying how she uh, prevented a, a husband from seeing his dying wife uh, for the general good. Uh, and I think that this sums up the problem that, although terrible as the Johnson government is, uh, the useless opposition lying in, in, in wait to take over if, if he goes, and they will be the beneficiaries if he goes, uh, is even worse. And it's most unwise for people to join in this pylon uh, against Johnson because the pylon is, only benefits Keir Starmer. And Keir Starmer's party puts out this, this tweet which appears to endorse uh, what, what seems to me to be one of the most ruthless, zealous actions of the whole yeah. lot. Well, what I found is, well, well, like you, I found it astonishing that they thought that actually um, that was a good tweet to put out because basically it showed how terrible Boris Johnson was. When in fact, all it did was it showed how awful the individual nurse was. Well, again, it, not awful. The, the, I, I'm no, my, I had an aunt who was a nurse, and, and, and she, I, I still look back with admiration at her life which was one of considerable courage and, and, and hard work and self-sacrifice and many other things. And I like nurses in general, though they're not what they were. And I can, I can see how somebody who believed in the, the common good could be deluded into imagining that keeping a husband from seeing his dying wife was, was, a, uh, was a good act. I'm not, I don't want to attack her. I can, given the level of the fear propaganda which was which was going on at the time, it's understandable that somebody might be compelled. This is what happens to people. The, the, all the people who do the terrible things in in utopias, where they, the, the in the end they turn into concentration camp states, they're all people who believe that they're doing good. The most terrifying sort of tyranny in the world is, as C.S. Lewis says, is, is is the sort where the, the people in charge think they're doing you yeah. good. So but I, I don't, but surely, I don't that, but that, that, but surely, but surely that doesn't excuse the act, though, Peter, does it? No, it doesn't. The act is wrong, uh, but th this is part part of the Christianity. You separate the act from the person. You can condemn the act without 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 condemning the person. I think we should be as careful as we can to do that as much as possible. Yes, but I think in the case of looking back at what went wrong and how we ended up where we are and something that you railed against uh, ever since the beginning of it, the lockdowns, you know, the draconian measures that were put into place, I think we have to, at the very least, it, separate the act from the individual by all means. But we need to find sure, but... who was the person that made that decision that was a good idea. But, well, just no? the person who took the decision took the decision under an enormous amount of pressure uh, in a, at a time, and we remember this, uh, when the country was in a frenzy of fear uh, about a disease whose importance I still believe it greatly overestimated. And the government was actively engaged in spreading that fear and in getting people to be more and more afraid. And I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that fear spread into NHS staff. After all, there they were in hospitals where they... Uh, where they were seeing people who were obviously genuinely ill, uh, they, they they must have they must have feared that this thing, given what the government was telling them, given what the modelers were telling them, they must have feared that this thing would become a general plague, uh, slaying 
millions. Yeah. And, and yet, and yet, once you've got that idea in your head, you can turn to a husband and say, "It doesn't matter whether you you cry or beg or plead. I'm not letting you see your dying wife." I can imagine people doing that. It's not. It's not impossible. The crucial thing about the tweet is not that she did that. It's that the Labour Party puts this case into a tweet as what it believes to be part of an argument against the Johnson government. In fact, it's an argument against the Labour Party because what they're doing is they—they are, I think, by picking this case, they're saying we would we we actually endorse this sort of behaviour. They haven't in all the time that this thing has been out and been attacked. They haven't at any time that I've yet seen said, oh, we didn't mean that. We didn't like what Jenny mm. did. Uh, I think we can rather assume, given the, the, the stony-faced attitude they've had throughout the panic, uh, that this is something which they would ultimately support. It is in their nature. They are zealots. Yes, they are. And, in fact, we know one thing about the Labour Party in that they would have had the same exact regulations in place. In fact, the regulations might have been worse had they been in charge because they always backed the same government regulations and restrictions, except they said they should have been made earlier and they should have been harder. And so is it not possible, though, Peter, that there will be another beneficiary uh, if Boris Johnson is removed and that will be the Tory party and the country because... There's no chance, I don't think, that there's going to be a general election anytime soon. Keir Starmer, I don't think, would win it anyway. Um, surely we just get a better prime minister, don't we? Well, you say that, um, but I, I'm not sure who it is you're referring to. <laughs> well, I refer to I refer to anyone who will not be as bad as Boris Johnson, basically. Well, OK. Um, that's I, I, Again, I take your point. But the reason why Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party is because he had and to some extent still retains, a certain, uh, a certain magic. Uh, he appealed to people which the Conservative Party wouldn't normally appeal to. And look at them, look at that uh, range of extinct volcanoes called the Conservative Front Bench. Look at them. Uh, who, who are they? Which of them would be, would be more likely than him to defeat uh, Sakir Starmer at the next election? Or my, you know, my nightmare at the next election actually, the Tories will face a, a revived Blair creature. Yes. Well, Blair, I mean, I, I, I think the interesting thing here is that one of Keir Starmer's strengths is that he's not Boris Johnson. If you put somebody else against him, he doesn't have that anymore. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't occupy the moral high ground that Boris Johnson doesn't occupy because everyone assumes now that he's just a liar uh, and, a, and a twister and somebody who will do anything to mm-hmm. save his own skin. If Keir Starmer's up against somebody equally, uh, shall we say, high-minded, then he doesn't have the upper hand. Yeah, but remember, Sir Keir does not have to win the next election. In fact, he almost certainly can't. He just has to win enough seats to form an alliance with Nicola Sturgeon. God help us. Well, you say that, and you will say that when it happens. But that's all he needs to do. Mm. And it wouldn't take much of a decline in the Tory vote for that to be the case. Uh, so, you know, I say, you can, you, can, you can be against a Starmer-Sturgeon coalition or whatever they call it when mm. it comes, uh, without being a friend or defender or ally or liker of Al Johnson. Yes. So but... I'm not defending Al Johnson. I'm saying, watch out. If you toss Johnson in the dustbin, it may give you a huge sense of pleasure and delight to do so. But w- once he's in the dustbin, it may not be long before you see uh, Keir Starmer cozying up to Nicholas Sturgeon. But, I, but are you not, though, Peter? Are you That'll not? 
Are you not now, Peter, guilty of a gross um, dereliction of your principles, though? Because you're now saying that a man who you have absolutely no time for, no respect for, who you don't think has done a very good job and who is, in fact, responsible for some of the worst decisions ever made in the history of politics, should stay on. For how long? I don't know. I, I don't think that's a dereliction of principle. What I've always said, or not always, but for for about the past 250 years, I've said <laughs> about the Conservative Party is that they're useless and that there is no substantial difference between them and, and, and the Labour Party. And in some ways, they're even worse, mm. uh, which I stick by. Uh, but in this specific instance, where what we have is basically an, an argument about whether the fanaticism and zealotry and authoritarianism of the COVID panic uh, was good, or whether it's actually run its course was probably a mistake and should be got rid of, then I think I have to I have to be at the very least defend the second of those two courses against the first, and I think every sane person does. However much I loathe the Tories, I don't want uh, to give strength and power and and and, and, uh, and indeed office to a government containing two people uh, who are who've been throughout this whole thing committed to being even more stringent, not merely burning down their own house to get rid of a wasp nest, but burning down everybody else's. Houses too, and that's what you know. Starmer, Starmer and Sturgeon. Look at the two of them. Mm. Throughout the whole thing, they've wanted more restrictions, longer restrictions, earlier restrictions, more devastating, damaging restrictions. I th- this this morning I saw that a, a favourite cafe at mine in Oxford had closed, uh, and I know because this has been in, in prospect for some time. I know that this is exactly because of these stupid restrictions mm. which were imposed upon it. It was a thriving, happy business which people liked using and which was making its owners a good income, uh, providing a service people wanted, and it's been killed. Not by COVID, as the BBC mm. would say, but by the stupidity of restrictions imposed. And yeah. the, this, isn't, this isn't just one thing. There's hundreds, probably thousands of these instances all over the country. I'm sick of it and of, and of all the other stuff. So in, if, if I'm faced with a, a political confrontation, between the people who are still in favour of that sort of rubbish and someone who seems to be going off it, then what do you do? Mm. No, I take that point. Stay where you are, though, because I want to talk about Russia uh, coming up next. Peter Hitchens is here, Mail on Sunday columnist. Uh, Some very interesting words to say there about Boris Johnson and why he believes that he should not be removed. Back with Peter Hitchens after this. Talk Radio. Up front and bold as brass. Rev it up and ran it out. The nation's best debate. Loud alive. A hippie to the hippie to the hip hip hop. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Wrote at the weekend about Boris Johnson. Also wrote a little bit about Russia as well. Peter was uh, stationed there. Uh, I know that's a rather old-fashioned word, Peter, but you were in Moscow uh, for the Daily Express for quite a long time. You know a bit about the way the old Soviet Union operated uh, and a bit about the mentality as well of Russia um, and it's sort of what you might call satellite states, for want of a better word. Um, I agree with you that, that much of this appears to be sabre-rattling, but I suppose when you see the US and the UK removing embassy staff, it takes on a slightly more a serious hue. Well, it's a curious thing to do anyway. Mm. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's part of trying to create a public mood uh, of danger and hostility in this. I, I'm not sure what the point of this is or, or why any government knowing anything about what war is like uh, would want to do anything mm. to make a, a war, particularly in continental Europe, 
more likely than it is now. Such a thing, if it happened, uh, would very likely spread. Uh, it would be economically catastrophic. It might even spread militarily into our own country. Uh, it would be devastating to the, the progress of mankind for years to come. And it would also be absolutely futile. And I, I really, I'm astonished. The problem with this whole thing for me has been for some years that it's been an absolute handicap in any argument to know anything about the subject at all. Mm. Uh, huge numbers of people now leap into it as if they understood it when they, they probably couldn't find a letter yeah. on a map right. and know nothing of the history of, of Ukraine or the nature of, of the state or, or why the problem originated as it does or why Russia has any interests in this at all or why it should care. And mm. In fact, the fundamental problem of this argument in, in many places where it's discussed in the West is absolutely no willingness to understand that Russia has interests. Mm. Now, you may not like Russia. You may imagine it's some country ruled by bears covered in snow where they have a funny alphabet. I, you think what you like about it, mm. but it is a country with people in it and a long history and a culture and a, and a, and a foreign policy in a position which often gets invaded in living memory. Uh, its second city was, uh, was subject, subjected to a starvation siege in which countless people starved to death. Uh, foreign armies of incredible brutality uh, swept deep into its countryside. This is in this is in living memory, mm. and these are not uh, these are not unique events. It's been going on for centuries. Mm. It's it, therefore it feels vulnerable and threatened when other powers move up close to its borders. It, don't you may think it's stupid for Russia to take this view. Think what you like. Uh, that is the view they take, and if you push. And, uh, and poke and probe and annoy, then they slightly to react. I published on Twitter today a, a favourite old cartoon of mine by, by Graham from the 1960s from, from Punch. It's a, a, a couple who are sitting on the top of a very tall bookcase in their sitting room uh, with a dog snarling at the foot of it and all the furniture turned over and the wife is saying to the husband, well, he had been rubbing him up the wrong way all evening. <laughs> and, and basically, that's what we do. Yeah. We rub Russia up the wrong way now for... for, for nigh on 30 years and we're surprised uh, when we get a response uh, well it's just stupid right. and it, it doesn't how can you possibly conduct diplomacy and then some idiot comes up oh this is just like munich in 1938 we're appeasing the russians do they know anything as i all? know i know it is amazing, has, isn't it? has withdrawn from hundreds of thousands of square miles of territory in central asia and europe uh, since 1991, not wholly uh, uh, non-violently, but but certainly uh, uh, certainly not much more violently than, the, than Britain withdrew from its empire. In fact, in some ways less, because mm. they they weren't responsible for things like the, the 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 awful catastrophic partition of India, which we left behind, and we didn't they didn't do what we did in in Kenya to the to to the Kenyan people there. So it's not that they've withdrawn. It is a withdrawing, shrinking country. Uh, it's it's not engaging in some gigantic aggressive. No, uh, it's Putin. We're told is trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Well, he's not. You know. No. Uh, well, if anything, it's quite. If anything, it's quite the reverse. He's kind of trying to resist the expansion of the European Union, isn't he? Because it was well, uh, that... it was Angela Merkel who first put Ukraine uh, down as the next uh, sort of domino to fall and become part of the EU. It's, it's it's well you know it, it was it was it was George W. Bush that master of diplomacy who began this back I think the two thousand and eight uh, NATO summit in mm. Bucharest uh, when the idea was put forward 
of suggesting Ukraine and Georgia should join NATO. And any fool could see that this is going to annoy and worry the Russians who've been saying for years, why are you expanding NATO? Right. Who, is this, who is this alliance against? NATO was set up, uh, as Lord Ismay notably said, said to keep uh, the Germans down, uh, the Russians out and the Americans in. But that was in the days of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union is gone. Mm. And having an alliance against the Soviet Union is like having an alliance against the Austro-Hungarian Empire or yeah. an alliance against the Ottoman Empire. These bodies don't exist anymore. Right. So why do we have this alliance against Russia when it, 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 it no longer is the aggressive dominator of a huge part of territory right the way up to Helmstedt in the middle of Germany, which it was in my lifetime and, 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 and yours? It, it doesn't make sense. And it's not surprising there. And the other, we did promise them. There's a huge archive at George Washington University in, 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 in the American capital uh, of, of the d documents showing that, that Western statesmen promised Mikhail Gorbachev uh, the, it, 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 just before he fell from power, in fact, that NATO would not be expanded eastwards. Mm. They did this in return for his permission, which was very reluctantly given to reunify Germany, the country which had, of course, mounted the most devastating invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. So it, uh, it, he wasn't the only person who was worried about reunifying Germany, by the way. Margaret Thatcher and I think François Mitterrand were worried about it too. But he gave that huge concession from a Russian point of view in return for, for our promising that we wouldn't expand NATO. It wasn't just him who didn't want to expand it. George Kennan, who was the greatest anti-Soviet diplomat of the American State Department, who developed the whole theory of containment, actually said, in, uh, I think, 1997, that expanding NATO was the, the stupidest thing that the West could do. It would only cause trouble. And Yegor Gaidar, who's now idolized by many Westerners, one of the liberal Russians who we wish were in charge rather than Vladimir Putin, and he actually approached the Canadian ambassador in 2004 in Moscow and said, please, will you try and tell your government, stop this nonsense of expanding NATO, it will only cause trouble. And, and yet it's complete orthodoxy in the West. There's no, there's no controversy or, 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 or doubt about this as a policy. And if you say it's a stupid policy, but, oh, you're a Putin apologist, or even more ludicrously, I'm, I'm told I'm some kind of communist fellow traveler, because half the world doesn't seem to realize that communism has fallen in, in Russia. It doesn't right. exist there anymore. And they hate it's, it there even more than everybody else does in other parts of the world. Peter, listen, we've got to run because we're running late. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday there, uh, once again uh, setting out his stall on the Russian situation, saying... He doesn't believe that there will be a war. He doesn't understand why people are rattling sabres, both sides of the fence, by the way, uh, both in Russia and here in the West, uh, suggesting there might be. Doesn't make any sense to him. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Listen on DAB+. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got lots going on. I'm reading just now uh, that apparently we are all back at work. Everybody's running back to the office. Apparently, uh, this is the first time in the last two years that everybody's back. Really? Are they? Can you tell me if that's true? Because I haven't really spotted it in London this morning. I have to say, I did come in a little bit earlier today than normal, but certainly last week I came in on the tube and it was rammed. Uh, if the trains are now more rammed than they were, please do let us know. Call us and tell us, because you know what we do here at Talk Radio. We listen to you, we tell everybody else, we get a picture of what's going on. Unlike those other ivory tower type broadcasters who don't do anything except get into, in and out of chauffeur-driven cars. They don't really know what's going on. Don't forget, you can watch us as well. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Roku, YouTube. Now we're on Amazon 
and Fire TV as well. There is absolutely no excuse not to be watching Talk Radio TV. And later on this year, you're going to get Talk TV as well. The likes of Piers Morgan uh, and all kinds of fantastic shows are going to be put up uh, for your delectation. There's no reason to watch anything else, really to be quite honest. Right now, though, let us talk to Anthony Worrell-Thompson, chef, restaurateur, a man whose restaurant I used to frequent not a million miles from here, I seem to remember. Uh, Anthony, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How's it going? Really good, really good. Now, Getting in this old. age of wokery, <laughs> in this age of, you know, cultural misappropriation, we're told Jamie Oliver couldn't now make his empire chicken. Um, you've famously got a sign outside your pub saying that everybody's welcome, which I salute you for. Um... What is going on? I mean, why can we not make a curry nowadays without being accused of somehow doing something wrong? It's a nonsense, in my opinion. I, I think if you spe- specify exact name of a dish that, uh, say, a cashmere something or whatever, and then you don't do it right, then fair enough. But what I tend to do when I write recipes or cookbooks, I say inspired by carbonara or inspired by you know, a dish from, if I've got an influence, I, I read hundreds of books, thousands of books, actually, right. and I get lots of ideas, and I adapt them to my way of doing I would never call it a classic name of that dish. I would just say, inspired by Pill Pill, we've got a prawn dish on with Pill Pill. You know, so it's a case of really not wanting to offend anyone, but actually say, hang on a minute, chefs want to experiment. We want to move around. We want to get ideas from different parts of the world. We're not upsetting people by taking their ideas from, say, China or Indonesia or Vietnam and adapting them to your customer base. Uh, I think it's a nonsense. I think people need to get alive Mm. and actually say, does it really matter at the end of the day if it tastes good? It doesn't matter what you call it as long as you're not offending anybody. Yeah. I mean, offence advisors is what Jamie Oliver's apparently employing to make sure that he doesn't put anything down which might be taken the wrong way. I mean, isn't it better to actually say to these people who are very much in the minority, actually, shove off, you know. I mean, I go to my local uh, Indian restaurant and Lamb Madras is still on the menu. Now, as far as I know, the name of Madras has been changed to Chennai, but they don't call it a Lamb Chennai, they call it a Lamb Madras. Exactly. I mean, what's in a name? It really doesn't matter. I mean... You've got to be a little bit careful if you're taking a classic recipe. Like I did a TV program for food and drink and I did a Cornish pasty and I, I, can't, I think I put Worcestershire sauce in it and I got so much flack <laughs> from the Cornish. But I mean, yeah, stick to classic, stick to the basic recipes of, and try and do it properly. But if you want to adapt a Cornish pasty to your way with a bit more flavour, I mean, everything can be improved. It doesn't matter how good the French say they are at cooking. There are ways you can improve French cooking. And that's what chefs are about. It's playing with food, getting the right technique, building up a, a, a repertoire of different recipes which you've tried and tested and you know work. And it really doesn't matter about the name, does it? Well, I don't think so, because surely the whole point now of the global world in which we live is that you use influences from all over. You know, there's a restaurant I'm going to go to later on tonight, uh, which has a kind of Asian kind of feel to it. But you can get Malaysian food there. You can get Thai food there. It's got a bit of curry going on. You know, if you said to me, what kind of restaurant is it? I'm not sure I could define it. But it's a good restaurant. The food's great. And that's why I'm going. And I don't really care whether somebody has got authentically, you know, qualified to make Malaysian food. You know, if I have a beef rendang and it tastes great, then that's good enough for me. 
absolutely. But then if it's going to be called rendang, it should be a rendang. So it should be like a dry curry. Yeah. But you go and get some rendangs chefs are doing and it's all sloppy and that isn't a rendang. Right. Um, but so if you're going to call something by a classic name, stick to a classic recipe. But if you're going to call it your say, so lo- lovely spiced beef dish that's uh, got some coconut milk or whatever in it and it's not a rendang, but it's got all the rendang spices in it, then I really don't see that's a major problem. No, oh, okay. Because, I mean, for example, I live, you know, well, I live uh, quite near here, but I also work very close to Borough Market. You know, you can go over there and get all kinds of amazing things. They do a scotch egg now uh, with all sorts of different things. You can get a black pudding scotch egg. You can get, a, yeah. you know, a quail scotch egg with something else wrapped around it. I mean, you know, the rules are not are not there to be adhered to, are they? Absolutely not. I mean, surely, I mean... Us chefs would find it incredibly difficult if we weren't allowed to play with food and have a little experiment and say, wow, I've just, you know, one day I, I threw some capers meant to go into a bowl. It went into the deep fryer and actually I got them out and they were fantastic. They were crispy and crunchy. And, you know, that's how dishes are discovered, you know, right. by mistakes quite often. Yeah. And if you can get it right, I, I, I do think this uh, sort of sticking to exact rules is complete nonsense. You know, to me, if you're a creative person, a creative cook, just do it. You know, and as long as it tastes good, that's what it's all about. Who cares yeah. about a name? No, exactly right. I mean, have you ever been presented by somebody who wasn't happy with something that you called a name? Or have you ever served up a dish to someone that said, you can't do that? No, we just asked them to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right, too. Quite right. And how is business, by the way? Because obviously it's been a struggle, hasn't it, for you guys in the hospitality business. I'm delighted to see that things are, it looks like, returning to normal and, and may never go back to the, the way they were. Well, to be fair, um, once we're allowed to be opened, we've done really well. Mm. Um, I made a decision last summer not to take corporate bookings for Christmas, and I, I think that was the right decision. So we got very few cancellations, where my other restaurant, Grill Off the Green, uh, in Kew got quite a lot of cancellations because they had a corporate uh, base as their, right. their, their customer base. But the Greyhound in Henley, I mean, we are, as I have to say, touch wood, we are very, very popular and, and long may it last. That's a great spot, though. I haven't been to the one in Kew. I didn't realise it was still there, to be honest. I, used to, I don't spend that much time down there, but is that going all right now? Yeah, yeah, it used to be called Kew Grill, but now we call it Grill Off the Green. Um, you know, we, we had came to the end of a lease and uh, we, we had to change the name. And uh, it's doing really well, really okay. well. It's a lovely little place. All right. And while I've got you on, um, what do you think of the way things are going generally with this government? Because, I mean, you've been uh, a voice in politics for a long time as well as being a chef. Um, what do you reckon, Anthony, about the whole Boris situation and the whole government situation right now? Well, I think it's a bit of a storm in a wine glass. I mean, it's uh, when you think of what's going on in the rest of the world, you know, China maybe invading Taiwan, Russia invading Ukraine... And we're worried about a few people sitting around a tea party. I, I, I think the world's gone mad. I do believe, obviously, every death is a tragedy and it will affect some people to say, well, hang on a minute, the government are, are doing this, so why can't we? I think they made some very stupid moves doing that. Without, I mean, Boris, come on. The buck stops with you. You can't say, I didn't know I was breaking the rules or whatever. So I, I think there's been a complete hash out. I think Whoever their advisors are, they've got it completely wrong. But it's time to move on. It's time to move on in everything. It's time to move on in COVID. It's time to move on with the government. Let them govern. Um, they're not being allowed to govern. You know, whether it's Theresa May before she had to do with Brexit, Boris Brexit, and now COVID, none of the recent governments have been allowed to govern. 
and it is time we put some policies into place to make this country a better place. I think that's a very good message. Anthony Worrell-Thompson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, speaking uh, from the heart, I think, and speaking probably for an awful lot of us, an awful lot of you maybe, let's just get on with it, shall we? I mean, I'm still going to go uh, with my, I'm not even going to call it a campaign, but my view on Boris Johnson, I think he's a shot, uh, um, he's done, he, he stick a fork in him, as we would say. You know, the guy has done everything that he could do. I don't think he could do much more because he, we are now down to basically trying to keep him afloat by coming out with more and more populist scenarios. Now, you might say, well, that's a good thing because it means that we'll get what we want. Uh, you know, let's get rid of the 5% uh, on energy bills. Let's get rid of the uh, 1.5, 1.25% national insurance rise in April. Let's get rid of the NHS vaccination mandate, which we're going to talk about after the uh, after the news at midday. You know, let's get rid uh, of all of the ridiculous restrictions on us not being able to stop people coming here. All of that is all policy that people voted for in 2019. However... That doesn't necessarily mean that if all that happens, he should stay. Because, you know, when somebody lets you down, they're going to do it again. And they're going to do it again. And until you learn that, they're just going to keep taking the mickey. It's as simple as that. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.